Lesson three. Just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, a friend was visiting Fields' hospital room, and he was surprised to find Fields reading a Bible. And when he asked W.C. Fields what he was doing reading a Bible, Fields said, I'm looking for loopholes. Well, there's no loopholes in the Bible, and there's no escaping the judgment of God. There's only Jesus. A guarantee of judgment. We're going to look today at a decreation event which takes place in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 1. Gerhardus Voss said this, God alone in the day of judgment will infallibly remove from the church all elements which while simulating its outward appearance do not belong to it in the inner spiritual reality. The word of the Lord has come to Zephaniah. The same word by which he's created the world is the word by which he's going to consume the world. And the scope of that judgment is going to be universal, and it's guaranteed by the word. Nothing's going to escape it. So after the introduction in verse 1, you can divide Zephaniah roughly into three general parts, and don't get too picky about the parts. It's You can divide them. Uh, if you like... Um, if you like alliteration, we can call them 1, 2 through 2, 3, the coming of the judge, a 2, 4 through 3, 8, the calculation of judgment, and 3, 9 through 20, consummation and joy. If you're not so into alliteration, we could simply say this. Part 1 is God's judgment upon Judah, generally. Part 2, God's judgment upon all created order, generally. And then part three is consummation and, and joy, uh, the new creation. Now, Zephaniah begins with quite a start. Uh, when you're introducing yourself to a group, you know, it's probably a good idea to start with a crowd warmer. Well, Zephaniah didn't get that memo. Uh, verse two, right out of the gate. Here it is. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <laughs> what a way to begin. And what a startling statement. Why does he start that way? Why doesn't he start out with warm and fuzzy and get to know them kind of deal? Well, it's to shake the unwarranted confidence of the Judahites. God's not going to judge us. God's going to judge the, the Assyrians. And so to get their attention, he has to shatter their equilibrium. He has to, to shake their illusion that everything's fine in their relationship with God. Uzziah, Josiah comes to the throne at the age of eight after his father had been assassinated. And his reforms, and you read about them in 2 Kings 22 and 23, they tell the story of a young king who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And his 18th year as king, he sends his scribe, Shaphan, to uh, the temple to, to gather some money, uh, to begin repairs on the temple, to uh, gather those who would help with that, the masons and the woodworkers, to purchase timber, timber and stone and acquire the services of all of those who are needed to construct it. And while on the mission, uh, Shaphan is told by the high priest, Hilkiah, that the priest had found the book of the law in the temple. 
And so the scribe begins to read it and he gets excited because he's reading stuff that he hasn't seen before. The book has been lost and he takes the book of the law to Josiah and he reads it to him. And when the king hears it, he tears his clothes and he immediately recognizes we have to move fast. And so he embarks on the most significant reform that the nation of Judah had ever seen, even to the point of extending his reforms in Judah to the northern kingdom where he officially wasn't the ruler, but he could extend his reforms there, and so he did. All right, it's long been agreed that the book that Josiah finds is a form of the Deuteronomic Code. Josiah's reforms are paralleled in many ways with the demands of that code. And the role of the prophet as a covenant enforcer, and particularly Zephaniah's context of the rediscovery of the law, provides then a significant connection between the book of Zephaniah and the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to notice a lot of those Deuteronomic uh, connections and parallels as we move throughout the text of Zephaniah. They're found all throughout it, but there are uh, several prominent passages and features of this connection that are worth noting, particularly as they relate to the covenant and the structure of the covenant. For example, the great king's righteousness. You read something of this in the book of Deuteronomy real throughout, but one example would be Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And we read of the great king's righteousness in a similar way in Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. We read of the great king's deeds in the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, the introduction, the uh, preamble, if you will, the historical prologue to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who, and here's what I did for you, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you see something of that too in Zephaniah in what God has done for his people. I've cut off nations. The battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets. No one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate. This is the work that I have done for you. We read covenant stipulations in the book of Deuteronomy. And we see similar language in the book of Zephaniah. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, where they're prophesying about the captivity when the people of God are going to be scattered, Deuteronomy says, there you will serve gods of wood and stone. Uh, From there, however, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. And in Zephaniah, seek the Lord, all you, uh, you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Uh, We seek covenant sanctions of cursing, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy. Well, uh, known for that, you find them really in the whole of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Uh, But there are some particular parallels. For example, Deuteronomy 28, 30, you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. In Zephaniah 1, 13, we read their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid to waste. They'll build houses but they won't inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and they won't drink wine from them. And I already mentioned the cloud imagery that harkens back to the giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 11 through 13. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. And the day of the Lord in Zephaniah 1 is described in similar language. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. 
Another parallel that we see, Deuteronomy 28, 29, you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. Zephaniah 1, 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their flesh shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung, or their blood shall be poured out like flesh, their, their uh, flesh like uh, dung. Covenant sanctions continue in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, 22, if fire is kindled by my anger, it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains. And Deuteronomy, in speaking of the day of the Lord, speaks of the fire of His jealousy, when all of the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. There are covenant sanctions of cursing, but there's also covenant sanctions of blessing in the book of Deuteronomy as well. Uh, if you repent, uh, Deuteronomy 30 and verses 2 through 5, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and will have mercy upon you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples uh, from where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And that certainly reminds us then of what Zephaniah says in 2, 6 through 9, when he speaks of the blessing aspect that comes upon Judah because of the cursing of the enemies of Judah. The seacoast shall become the possession, the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. In the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord your God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. We read in Deuteronomy 30 verses 8 and 9, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. The Lord will again take delight in you as he took delight in your fathers. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 20, and we as well can be reminded is what we'll look at later, the, what O. Palmer Robertson calls the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, where God takes delight in His people and sings over His people. Zephaniah 3.20, kind of the capstone of the book. At that time, I will bring you in. I will gather you together. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And with such a parallel to the law code, it's no wonder then that Zephaniah comes out of the gate by saying, I'm going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. You haven't done these things. And sweep away is really a great translation because the first two words of this verse, they play off of each other. Uh, Zephaniah using poetry is going to use some of this uh, poetic puns throughout the book. Uh, Sof a safe, he says, sweeping away. I'm going to remove to the end like a broom, sweeping away the room clean. Nothing is going to left behind. That's emphasizing the comprehensive, the emphatic nature of the action of God in judgment. Why? To purify the house. Why does the house have to be clean? Because the king is coming and he can't tolerate uncleanness. Then we see this phrase, face of the earth. He's going to sweep away from the face of the earth. And there again, it's describing the comprehensive nature of the judgment. We might expect the word land, right? That would typically be used to speak of the inheritance promises of Israel. But here it speaks of a judgment on the globe. This is going to be a judgment that is universally comprehensive. The wages of sin is death. Judgment is going to come upon sin, and nothing is going to survive. There's no loopholes. And Zephaniah is shattering their security. 
we may have a tendency to think that the worst thing that can happen is you can't take it with you. And Zephaniah is saying, you can't even leave it behind. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to get swept away. And then God gets specific. So you may, if you have kids to tell your children to, you know, clean their room and everything, everything. And you go in and it's not clean. And as you know, parents, you learn you know, really quick that you need to say, clean under your bed and clean your dresser and clean your closet and clean your carpet. And, clean, you, know, and you itemize. And God begins now to itemize. Why does he itemize? Because the unrepentant in Judah need to know that they're on that list of everything. They had the tendency to think that everything doesn't mean me. That we're God's chosen people. He doesn't mean us. Never mind the fact that you know, we're not obedient to him. The day of the Lord comes and those, those awful Assyrians are going to get what's coming to them. And Amos 5, who parallels Zephaniah in a lot of ways, we're not going to explore them, but I'll bring up Amos a couple of times, parallels Zephaniah in many uh, ways, particularly in the structure of the book. But he kind of captures this uh, sentiment. Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. And so God gets specific in verse 3. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is pretty comprehensive. But it's not just a checklist. What's Zephaniah doing? It's a protological reference that's indicting them for their violation of the creation covenant. Because what we see here are creatures mentioned in the exact reverse order in which they appear in Genesis chapter 1. Destruction of man, beasts, birds, and fish is the decreation of fish, birds, beasts, and man. And that should enable them to appreciate, enable us to appreciate too, Zephaniah's theological framework. This prophecy of judgment is presented as an undoing of God's created activity. What he's pronounced good has become corrupted. It will pass away. It will be replaced, as the passages that speak of redemption are going to show, and it's going to be replaced by that which is new. And that specification then puts judgment in a covenantal context. Zephaniah is using the protological covenant of creation here in chapter 1 to anticipate the eschatological, the ultimate new creation in chapter 3. Now, why reverse the order to speak of the fact that it's totally going to be undone and remade and God is going to begin with man who had been given dominion as king reigning under the great king has been given dominion over everything as the crown of creation and God begins with man who's denied the creator and then he proceeds to list everything under man's dominion. And there also seems to be a reference here, at least an echo, of the covenant of grace with Noah in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and the covenant of common grace that we see in Genesis 8, 22. In 6, 7, and 8, God says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Uh, Adamah, uh, this is a decre- Adam, Adamah, this is decreation, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, God says. 
Nevertheless, what happens? This new creation after the flood, God promises in Genesis 8.22 that while the earth remains, there will be a regular cycle of life that will continue, but also implying at the same time that there will be a day when the earth will no longer remain. What does Zephaniah do? He's hearkening back to the Noahic themes to speak of the final judgment of the world that's going to be universal in scope, not marked by flood, but by fire, right? Second Peter chapter 3. So God says in the middle of verse 3, I will remove the rubble along with the wicked. There's a separation. There's a distinction between uh, what, uh, who the wicked are and what they make their idols from. Rubble is sometimes used to describe materials that would make an idol. And what's wicked is humanity. Trees aren't wicked and stones aren't wicked. They're not inherently dogs and cats, uh, possessions, wealth, houses. The created order itself isn't inherently wicked, but man abuses, perverts the things that God has created, turns the creature into an image of that he will worship, a false image of the creator. So the sin of humanity is taking the good things of God's creation, and they're twisting them into causes for sin, objects of worship and lust and pride. And what are they doing? It's an obliteration of the creator-creature distinction, changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And there's birds, four-footed animals, and so on. It's idolatry. And then the last part of the verse provides a, a judgment against humanity. Now, again, returning to kind of a broad sense. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And of course, that cutting off phrase should be you know, familiar to us. It is a phrase used quite often in the Old Testament, a couple hundred times. And the vast majority of those times, it's speaking about being cut off from God, cut off from God's people. And to be cut off is a curse. The word means to annihilate or to cut off from the living. It's a death sentence as the people of God. All humanity is going to face the death penalty. And then what's implicit in 3C becomes explicit in 4A, the beginning of verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, And then even more specifically, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you are going to face that judgment. All humanity is guilty, sin. But specifically, Judah, people of God, are more culpable. And this phrase, uh, stretch out my hand, what a a remarkable phrase this is. It's a picture we see throughout the Bible. It's It's a picture of God's power intervening particularly against rebellious man and overturning their plans. In fact, by my count, there's about 30 times that this phrase is used in the Bible. 15 of them are used of God. Eight of them are God telling his servant to stretch out his hand. In every case, to stretch out your hand means overturning the purposes of the enemy, judgment, delivering the people of God, redemption. And usually the phrase, I'll stretch out my hand, is followed by the word against. That's what we see here in Zephaniah 1.4. Interestingly, the first nine times this phrase is used are in the book of Exodus. Zephaniah is hearkening back to the Exodus event, and it's directed against Egypt in order to deliver the people of God. God tells Moses, first use of the phrase, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt, and with all the wonders that I will do in it, And after that, he will let you go. In several of the plagues, God tells his servant, right? 
Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt. It's as if the hand of God is reaching out of heaven, picking up his enemies and turning them over. But now God's going to stretch out his hand against Judah. What's Zephaniah saying? Judah has become a pagan people. Judah has become Egypt. So what we're seeing here, we've seen an undoing of creation. Now we see an undoing of the Exodus. The people of Israel are going to be led back into captivity, this time to Babylon. Verses 4 and 5, last part of verse 4. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Zephaniah is now indicting a number of categories of false worship that you find in Israel. The first one we see here is those who worship Baal. Uh, this is written during the time of Josiah. These reforms are going on, but Baal worship is still prevalent. It's so deeply embedded in their society. And of course, Baal was the, the general name for uh, the false god. The name meant ruler or lord. Here's the false king. He's the false husband. It quite often uh, signified a variety of pagan gods that were found in Canaanite lands. And the Assyrians particularly had a god named Bel, and that could be what's intended here, quite possible. Jeremiah speaks of the shame that would come upon Bel. He would have to spit out the nations that he swallowed up, uh, Jeremiah 51, 14. And the Babylonian king, uh, Belshazzar, Bel's prince, was named after this pagan deity. And so uh, his uh, symbols of his, his worship, statues, practices, uh, the cult of, of Baal dominates the landscape. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, even to the point of the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. So you have priests from the tribe of Levi who minister at the altar of God in the temple, and then they turn around and worship Baal. And the priests of the pagan nations, along with those false priests of the Judahite nation, will be cut off. The idolatrous priests, the ones who attempted to serve both Yahweh and Baal, a little bit of coin, and they'll offer sacrifices to whoever you want if the price is right. Tiamat, Anshar, Kishar, plethora of Google Assyrian gods sometime. You'll get lit page after page after page. And not only are the priests indicted, but the worshipers who follow them. Verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. In paganism, uh, the sun, moon, stars were living beings. They were considered in paganism to be human spirits. And some believed that uh, the star angels had been set over the pagan nations to rule them uh, with God's permission. And some in Israel then took these star angels and began to worship them as lesser deities. Voss uh, talks about this in biblical theology. So here's another reference to the perversion of the creator-creature uh, distinction. Men are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that's not new in Judah, is it? This is what Manasseh institutes. He's the one who institutes this worship of the hosts of heaven. But it continues. Deuteronomy prescribes the death penalty for that. 
And then compounding the confusion of worshiping these beings is a lack of spiritual leadership in Israel. The designation of worship taking place on uh, rooftops speaks uh, of, of individualized worship. Everybody worships wherever they want, however they want. Compounding of sin. Worship is supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be offered in the temple through the priests. And then the hypocrites not spared either. Uh, the indictment continues in the last part of verse 5. Those who, <clears throat> those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, um, many uh, would masquerade as people in service of Yahweh, and then they would pass themselves off when it was convenient to be servants of Baal. You know, when in Assyria you do as the Assyrians do. Let's hedge our bets. Uh, let's serve Milcom too. I mean, what can go wrong, right? There's an extra one. We need a blessing there. And this is possibly in, in, in reference to the chief god of Assyria. Um, in Second or First Kings chapter 11, Solomon builds altars to Milcom on the Mount of Olives to please his foreign wives. And it's a sin then that's going to continue to rear its ugly head uh, throughout the monarchical period. And swearing to this pagan deity is a violation of God's covenant law. Swearing, of course, that's part of this ancient Near Eastern idea of entering into a covenant oath. They would bind themselves to this pagan deity. But the conditions of Judah's inheritance are clear. You read them in Joshua 23, 7. You shall not make mention of the names of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not bow down to them nor shall you serve them. They were to worship their king, not the pagan monarchical deity. They were to swear fealty to God and God alone. And to emphasize this contrast, Zephaniah declares in 3.15 that the king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. Now he's going to expand uh, this indictment even further in verse 6 as he includes those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So now coming full circle, this may be in a chiastic structure, and you're familiar with chiastic structures where you have one line that says something, and then you have another line that says something else, and then you usually have a line in the middle, and you have a third line or the fourth line that repeats the second line, and there's a repetition, and in the middle is usually where kind of the important phrase is or the emphasis of, of the phrase could be. And this seems to be in a chiastic structure. Uh, verse 6 parallels verse 3 and the last part of verse 3, and it presents the judgment with a broad stroke again. Now a stroke against those who had violated God's covenant. It's a summary of the indictments for those who practice false religion in numerous ways, representing a, a whole range of ungodly responses. There's no pretense now uh, for following after God. They haven't asked what God wants. They're not interested in finding out what God wants. They're aware, they know at least, they've heard the truth of the word, but with a willful determination, with a deliberate rebellion, they've turned from God a condition which is deadly and it draws God's righteous judgment. But this is all bad news, right? Well, no. In the middle of what sounds like bad news, there's glimmers of hope. The removal of every trace of Baalism. That's good news. This is the restoration of the purity of worship. 
The echoes of Noah, they remind us that the destruction of the flood points to God's work of salvation because in judging sinners, God's providing salvation for Noah and his family. Peter says they were saved by means of the water. For the righteous, the flood was a redemptive experience providing a new earth for God's covenant people. Klein talks about this in God, Heaven, and Armageddon. The flood that demonstrates the waters of deadly judgment can be navigated through the vehicle God provides for salvation, the person and work of Jesus. Zephaniah calls upon this flood imagery to show us that the fire of judgment to come can be safely endured for those who are hidden in God's refuge for salvation. He is restoring new creation, pure worship. The removal of stubble points to great hope because it's not simply a judgment on sin. It is that, but it's more than a judgment. It's an eradication of sin, a purification of creation, a new creation, a dwelling place for Jerusalem. It's the anticipation of what you see in Revelation 21.5, where God says, I will make all things new. Christ's words in Matthew 13, where Perhaps Jesus is drawing upon Zephaniah. Listen to this. He will send out his angels and he will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, the stumbling blocks, Zephaniah might say, those who practice lawlessness, along with the wicked, Zephaniah says, will cast them into the furnace of fire, Zephaniah 1.18. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In the last day, the day of the consummation of Christ, God will remove from his old creation all things that cause stumbling, all those who perform wickedness. And what remains is the righteous shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. The righteous made so by the meritorious work of the covenant son. And that's the pattern, again, that you find throughout Zephaniah. Judgment exacted upon God's enemies provides relief and salvation for God's children. But I think the central element of of what we're looking at here is that God will stretch out his hand and cut off Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city of God's dwelling. What he's doing ultimately is he is cutting off his people from his presence. He'll preserve a remnant of people for himself. And these two pictures that we see here, the stretching out of the hand of God and the cutting off of sinners are transformed by the gospel itself into a message of mercy for those who trust in Christ. Outside of Christ, the stretched out hand of God cuts you off in terror, hidden in Christ. The stretched out hand of God is stopped at the cross as Christ is cut off on your behalf. And these pictures give us insight into the way in which Christ brings his kingdom. What do you find when you come to the work of Jesus? You see Jesus working miracles by doing what? Stretching out his hand, the power of God working among his people. In Luke 11, Love this picture. Jesus speaks of the finger of God, whereby he casts out demons. He overcomes the strong man, Satan. He plunders his house, Luke chapter 11. 
when Peter and John, they're released from prison. They sing and they pray with God's people, Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And here's the key word, while you stretch out your hand to do what? To heal. Signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And Acts chapter 4 is the only place where this phrase, stretch out your hand, is used in the New Testament. They're not just praying that God will perform miracles and impress everybody. What are they talking about? Nothing less than the power of the gospel itself going out and conquering. That's what it does. Jesus conquers sin by conquering death in the resurrection. And he not only pays sin's penalty, he overcomes its power. And it's because he will annihilate the stumbling blocks, annihilate sin, that we can look forward to a new creation wherein dwells perfect righteousness. The book of Zephaniah not only points to the stretching out of God's hand and overturning enemies, but the stretching out of the hand of God to give salvation. That if you trust in Christ alone for salvation, if you repent of your sin and you go to the cross where Christ has paid the penalty of your sin, God will extend to you not eternal judgment, but eternal grace. Not death, but life. Not being cut off, but being united to Jesus Christ.